Thank you. Uh, Ken and I have a mutual admiris, uh, admiration society go on, going on. I remember the first time I heard Ken, I was sitting somewhere over here, and I don't live in Bend, but we came to visit our daughters, and when I heard Ken preach, I wanted to go all Pentecostal. You know, I was sitting back there, trying not to yell out amen for everything he said. So I love your pastor, and I'm so thrilled to be here uh, basically to share stories with you. Uh, ben Larson, I love the worship group, and thank you so much for, um, you know, reminding us that Jesus is our blessed assurance. And um, so my daughter Connie called me this week and said, so mom, are you afraid? Are you nervous about speaking at Antioch? And I said, no, I'm really excited to come, but it's a little different once you get up here, you know? <laughs> and you all are staring at me to dress okay, you know, that's the big thing. Um, but uh, we are going to talk about fear, and if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Timothy 1.7. That's the verse we'll camp on today. There are different kinds of fear. Fear we typically think of as a physical reaction to something. I have a friend from the Sudan, and his name in Sudanese is Mozambuku, and it means trouble. And I asked him once, uh, we call him David, I said, David, why did your mom name you trouble? And he said, when she was very pregnant with me, she had to outrun a, a lion. And so she thought that was trouble, and I thought that's a pregnancy story we never hear in America. <laughs> so we can have a very physical reaction to a perceived danger the way David's mom did when she's pregnant and the lion's chasing her. But what we're going to look at in 1 Timothy 1.7 is a mindset of fear which is a totally different kind of thing than that physical fear. I want to make sure that you know it's perfectly normal if a lion's chasing you to run and to be afraid. But that's a different way of looking at fear as a perceived danger or a way of thinking. For instance, if your girlfriend calls you up in the middle of the night and says, I think I heard a noise, it's probably not a very good time to say to your girlfriend the story about your neighbor waking up in the middle of the day and finding an intruder in her home and scaring her. Your language can escalate fear or it can diffuse it the language we employ. So what you might want to say to your girlfriend when she calls you in the middle of the night and tells you that she's hearing a noise is, I'll stay on the line with you. It's probably just a squirrel on the roof. Recently in my inbox, I got a video. Now, I don't know why I got this video. I don't know why they pegged me for this video. And maybe all of you got the video, too. I don't know. But we're going to take a look at it.
Anyone else get that video? No? Now, what the people who sent that video around don't know is that I grew up in a trailer. So I just think of these underground bunkers as underground trailers. I have struggled with fear ever since I was a little girl. My mother always referred to me as her most hysterical child, and it was a fitting title. The very first time I can remember being afraid, I was four years old, and I was standing at the sliding glass door that led out to the backyard, and there was a Georgia thunderstorm, lightning storm, rolling in. Now, I've been in Bend in the summer, and I know you get your share of storms, but you don't know what a thunderstorm is until you have lived in West Georgia for a thunderstorm. So I was standing there, and every time it thundered, I would scream. And my mother, ever the practical woman, said, if that scares you so much, why don't you move away from the door? <laughs> but lest you decide that my storm fears were silly, you should know that lightning is the number two weather-related killer in Georgia. Tornadoes is first. And I was scared of tornadoes, too, after we moved into a 12 by 60 aluminum, aluminum and plywood box. And yes, it was stacked on cinder blocks. No skirting, nothing fancy. We had to move it quickly a lot of the time, so it was easy to hook up and go. You know what they call a trailer park in Georgia? Anyone? Tornado Alley, right? My mother bought that 12 by 60 trailer with $10,000 that the army gave her after my father was killed in Vietnam. I was nine years old. I had a brother who was 12 and a sister who was seven. My mother was 29 and uneducated. She had dropped out of high school after two weeks to marry my father. The second time I remember being afraid was the day we visited my father in the funeral home. We were in the South, open caskets were a common thing, especially in those days. Nobody told us ahead of time that that's where we were going to go. Nobody said anything, we just got dressed, she put us in the car and she drove us to the funeral home. And my father is the first dead person I ever saw. And from that moment on, fear was my most faithful companion. To say that I was scared may underestimate it. Terrified would be more common. By the time I was 12, full-blown paranoia had set in. 
My mother had sent my brother off to military school because that's what women in the South do with unruly boys who need a male influence. So my mom normally worked the graveyard shift because she could make more money. So that left my sister and I at home, and me being the oldest, I felt a huge responsibility to take care of my younger sister. I also became convinced that year that a character that looked a lot like Jack Nicholas in The Shining was going to show up in the middle of the night. Our trailer had two doors, one by the kitchen and one by the back bedroom. My sister slept in the back bedroom, I slept in the bedroom in the middle. When my mother would go to work at night, I would put my sister to bed and then I would lay on the hard linoleum floor of that trailer with my head jutting out just out into the hallway so that I could be alert if Jack Nicholson's character came in the front door, I could grab my sister and head out the back door. If, you know, whichever way he came, I was going to grab her and go out the other door. That was my plan. It was great for escaping monsters, but it was a terrible plan for one's sanity. So my mother, seeing that I wasn't sleeping and that I was in this state of paranoia, took me to a therapist. And the therapist told her that the way to solve that would be to stay home more and to start taking me to church. And my mother was angry at God. So hanging out at his house was not something she really wanted to do. So she quit taking me to the therapist. I told you she was practical. By the time I was a co-ed at Oregon State University, my fears reached an irrational point. The fear of flying came over me the minute I heard that Elvis Presley died. Right? I said it was irrational. It was August 16th, 1977, and I was walking through the home of a pastor in Indiana where I was serving with the summer missions program with the Southern Baptists when the newscaster on the TV announced that Elvis had died. And that moment, without any prior uh, warning, I became terrified of flying. But the next week, I had to fly back to Oregon. So I made a deal with God. I told him, if you get me home, I promise to never get on a plane again. <laughs> and for 20 years, I did not. And I had been a military child. I had flown often. I would wake up in the middle of the night with this gripping, suffocating fear of flight. Now, mind you, I was the mother of four kids. I couldn't get to the bathroom alone, much less parrots, right? So the fear of flying made no sense. I wasn't going anywhere. But the fear was that pronounced. I was a woman of faith. 
living in an ever-constant state of hypervigilant fear. My mother had been right all along. I really was scared of my own shadow. As the outside world got scarier, my world got smaller. I began to see everything in an us and them equation. Us being our family, our values, our way of thinking, and them being anyone outside of our family, our values, our way of thinking. I only kept company with people who valued what I valued. People who thought the way I thought. And people who were as afraid of the world as I was. Now, I wasn't stockpiling toilet paper yet. That's hard to do in a house with three girls. But I was convinced that the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Darkness, was taking over the world. So the only way to protect my family from that Prince of Darkness was to draw into that home. Then one afternoon, while reading my devotional, I came across 1 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It was that last part. I was pretty sure I was missing that one. And so that very day, I began to pray. And my prayer went something like this. Dear God, I can see that as we age, we begin to see the world one of two ways. As a place of wonder or a place to be afraid of. I want to see the world as a place of wonder, but I'm too afraid. Make me fearless. It wasn't very long after that that I became a reporter at the local newspaper in Eastern Oregon, a job I started on my 40th birthday, 20 years ago and eight books ago. Today, I'm a Delta Sky Miles member. I have been to Singapore, I have been to Saigon, and yes, I've been to Paris. It was a gray-haired granny in a trailer in Echo, Oregon, who helped me overcome my fears. I got a call one night from our publisher telling me that there was a police chase underway in town. By the time I got up to the exit off Interstate 84, I could see a police officer I knew running up the backside of the BP station. He had his gun drawn, and he was flanked on either side by other police officers. I swung my car around to the Red Lion, parked it, and the sheriff motioned for me to come over. When I got to his car, he told me to hunker down behind the open car door. There was a pregnant woman carrying a toddler right in front of her, and she was making a run for the store. And police were shouting at a man to put his gun down, and this man was shouting back at them. And I didn't learn the gunman's name 
until after he was shot and killed. That name is Eric Shannon. His mother was that gray-haired woman in Echo, Oregon, named Shirley Dunham. Earlier on that freezing January night, not long after Shirley and her husband had returned from Wednesday night prayer service at the Baptist church, they put their five grandchildren to bed and were headed there themselves. Charles and Shirley had custody of those five children because the state of Oregon had taken them away from Eric and put them in his mother's home. Along with Eric that night was a woman named Robin Hawker, his pregnant live-in girlfriend. Shirley, who knew her son better than anyone, had warned the state DHS that Eric would not take lightly to those children being taken from him because if there was one entity that Eric couldn't stand, it was the government. Shirley knew all along that Eric would come for those children, and she had told DHS that. Carrying a semi-automatic assault rifle and extra ammunition, Eric told Robin to grab the other guns, a 12-gauge and a tw uh, 22, and he and Robin snuck around behind the back of that trailer of his mom's and cut the phone cables. He removed a screen from the window and crawled into the living room. Then he went over and opened the door so that his very pregnant girlfriend could come inside the trailer. As soon as they got inside, he began screaming at his mother, where is Adam? Where is my son? Adam was Eric's oldest son. Shirley tried to tell Eric that she didn't know where Adam was because the one thing Shirley and the state both recognized is that Eric had a fixation on this older son of his. They knew that he would come for that boy. So they had taken that boy and placed him in a different place. Not with his grandmother. And she did not know where he was. Eric had been raised up in the Baptist tradition of his mother's faith. He had gone to vacation Bible school. He had done youth missions. He had been part of the youth program. He could quote John 3.16, and he knew the Great Commission. Shirley said to me later that he was like a little evangelist. But for all of his knowledge of the word of God, his mama's faith never suited Eric. When he got out on his own, he began to try out other faiths. So he tried Mormonism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, and none of those really suited him either. So Eric began to take a little bit from each faith, and he concocted his own belief system. And in that belief system of Eric's, the oldest boy held a special place. Eric maintained that Adam, by birthright, had dominion over all the other siblings, in particular, the sisters. 
It was the implementation of that hierarchy within the family that led to the abuse investigation to begin with. Adam, only 13, was encouraged by his father to discipline his younger siblings. There were other problems. One of the sisters kept a diary where she detailed stories of physical and sexual abuse, threats upon her life and the life of her siblings. It was Shirley who had turned that diary over to the state, the one entity that Eric hated the most, the government. Eric lived a life of fear. Power was his only recourse in the face of such fears. Eric was a card-carrying member of the religion of certainosity. It's the fastest growing religion in the world. It is marked by one thing, the belief that you are right rather than redeemed. The religion of certainosity says you are right and redemption doesn't matter. And there is no one more right in the world than a crazed man with an assault weapon. Eric yelled at Robin to tie up his mother. He pulled the trigger on the gun and blew a hole through his stepfather's thigh. He hollered at the kids to get in the car. Robin hogtied Shirley to that bed. Shirley could hear the frightened cries of her grandchildren as Eric ranted at them. And she could hear the moans from her husband. Robin, eight months pregnant, straddled Shirley on that bed. She pressed a shotgun into Shirley's chest as Eric paced that hallway saying, I should just kill my mother, I should just kill her. Then Robin looks up above Shirley's bed and there's a picture of Jesus there. So taunting Shirley, she presses that gun closer, further into her chest, and she says to Shirley, where's your Jesus now, huh? Where is he now? And that's a question we all have to answer. In the face of our deepest fears, where is Jesus now? The experts tell us that anxiety this election season is at an all-time high. Americans are living and thriving in fear. Fears over Trump, fears over Clinton, fears over the government, fears over the economy, fears of terrorists, fears over global warming, fears over refugees, fears over the religious right, fears over the liberal media, fears of guns, fears of no guns, fears for our children, fears for our grandchildren. Fears of domestic unrest and fears of global unrest. And this doesn't even include the normal, everyday fears we face. How will my marriage last? Will my job last? Is my life counting for anything good? How will I handle chemotherapy? Will I ever have a child? Will I have any Facebook friends left once this election season is over? 
We are supposed to live a life of faith in the face of so many fears, but how? How are we supposed to keep our hearts from being troubled given the state of this nation and the state of this world? So let's take a look at that verse, shall we? What does it mean that God has not given us the spirit of fear? I apologize to you getting spit on down there. Sorry about that. I was going to pass out towels. The Greek word for fear in this verse, verse, you like those braces? The Greek word for fear in this verse is most literally translated as cowardice. In other words, when we have a spirit of fear controlling us, we are acting as cowards. And a coward always acts out of their own self-interest. A coward does not look out for others. They are looking out for themselves. To be a coward is an act of selfishness. A spirit of fear, the way it's talking about here, propels us to think first and foremost of our own survival. Jesus faced this cowardly fear. He had to face it. He had to face it in order to overcome it. The spirit of fear will always result in us taking the coward's action. So what does it mean to have power in the face of that cowardness. Keep in mind that when Jesus began his ministry, those three years, he's out traveling the lands with his disciples. He knew what the end was going to be. He knew it. Can I tell you something? You know those pictures of Jesus in Gethsemane where there's light coming on his face and his hands are sublimely folded in front of him? I just hate that picture, right? Like that does not look to me like a man who's sweating drops of blood because he's afraid because he knows what the next 24 hours are going to bring. So when I think of that, Gethsemane, the vision that always comes to my mind is that of a soldier who has seen the horrors of war and is imagining the slaughter to come. He or she knows that they are unlikely to survive the next 24 hours. Jesus knew the slaughter he was going to face, and it terrified him. He felt that cowardly fear. And so what did he do in the face of that? Where did he draw his power? He prayed. He prayed first and foremost. He prayed the prayer of a terrified man, because prayer gives us courage. Prayer will infuse us with the courage to overcome our deepest fear. 
It was prayer that enabled Christ to face that cross the next day. So what does it mean to love in the face of fear? Every culture throughout history has honored that truth in John 15, 13. You know it. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. I have often heard that verse repeated to me throughout my lifetime. But prior to that verse is a commandment that we love one another. Jesus didn't just lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies. He laid down his life for his enemies. To have love in the face of fear means that we must be willing to put aside our own cowardice and to do right by others, friend or foe. And to not act out of our own selfish interests. When we happen upon people who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who don't ascribe to the dogmas that we ascribe to, the religion of certainosity would have us push those people aside. The religion of certainosity would tell us to, that those people are wrong, that, that we must call out their wrongness. And that we must then separate ourselves from them. It would tell us to fear them. It would also tell us that they are a threat to us and our way of living and our way of thinking. And that our mission, if we ascribe to the religion of certainosity, is to defeat them. But that is not the example that Christ set for us. The crucifixion was always an act of inclusion. A courageous act that wiped out the us and them of the religion of certainosity dogma. An equation that the us and them becomes more pronounced, right? When we grow more afraid. The more afraid we are, the more us and them there are. Love in the face of that fear is sacrificial. It is to regard others more highly than we regard ourselves. It is to ask ourselves, what can I do about the refugee crisis in Syria? What should I be doing about the refugee crisis in Mosul? What should I be doing about sexual assault victims? What should I be doing about children who have suffered child abuse? How do I extend hospitality to people who don't look like me, who don't think like me, and who don't practice the religion I practice? We are saved by love, Reinhold Niebuhr said. We dare not exclude others because that's the cowardly way. That is not God's way. Love infuses us 
with courage. It was Christ's love for us that gave him the courage to face the crucifixion. So what does it mean to have a sound mind in the face of fear? This was always the most important one to me. My father, a career soldier, was a very disciplined man, an affectionate man, especially toward our mom and us kids. But with his men, my father retained a certain reserve. He had a presence about him. His men, they were just boys, really, just 19 and 20, most of them. I've met some. They regarded him with respect. He could be hard on them, but they, they told me that they understood that when he was hard on them, it was for their own benefit. He was trying to prepare them in their minds to have the right reactions for when they went to battle. A sound mind is a disciplined mind. It is the mind that knows when to walk away from the sliding glass door, or CNN, or Fox, or Facebook, or Twitter. It is a mind that has been trained for life's most terrifying moments. A sound mind will always choose to reach out to protect others, to serve others, to lay down one's life for others, friend and foe, the way good soldiers always do, the way Christ did for all of us. Christ didn't just have a worldview by which he lived. He had an eternal view by which he lived and he died. After he washed the disciples' feet and warned them that there was one among them that would betray them, Jesus told his closest friends that he would be leaving soon. Don't worry, he said. Don't be afraid. I'm going away, but I won't leave you alone. I'm going to send an advocate to be with you to help you. That advocate will help you live a life free from fear, a life of faith. Faith thrives in community. Fear thrives in isolation. Right? We know this. The armed gunmen, they always withdraw before they go on that shooting spree. The more fearful Eric Shannon grew of the world, the government, the public schools, even the meat and produce that he bought at the grocery store, the more he withdrew. The more isolated he became, the more abusive he grew. Shirley Dunham knew fear. In the most terrifying moments of her life, with a gun pressed up to her chest, with her husband moaning and possibly dying in that trailer hallway, 
with the cries of her grandchildren echoing behind her. She knew fear. When Robin Hawker asked Shirley, where's your Jesus now, huh? Shirley had a mindset of God. And she answered calmly, not yelling. She just answered very calmly, he's right here. He's right here, she said. Even in the most unspeakable horror of any grandmother's life, Jesus was with her. He's right here, she answered, her mind assured. Those were the last words that Shirley Dunham would ever speak to her son, Eric Shannon. Words that were spoken in a spirit of power, in a spirit of love, and a spirit of a sound mind. But what about when we're faced with that moment of where's your Jesus now? In the midst of terrifying times, times of national and global unrest, and even times of personal distress, what is our witness to the world? Do we live out a life of power? Do we live out a life of love? Are we regarded among people on Facebook as that person of a sound mind? Or do we live out lives of fear? Is our lives a testament that no matter what may come, civil unrest, global unrest, death, divorce, a Trump administration or a Clinton administration? Do our lives reflect the truth that there is nothing to fear because Jesus is here? Let's look at that verse again. For God has not given us the spirit of fear through cowardness, but of power through prayer, of love through inclusion, and a sound mind through his word. May God help us to be a faithful people testifying to a world that is fearful. Would you pray with me? Father, there is nowhere, nowhere we can go today and not turn on the radio or turn on the TV or turn on any of our uh, technology without being bombarded with the message of fear. It is all around us. It is how we are controlled and manipulated by the darkness. But you can take our mind and you can take our spirit and you can transform it. You gave us the model through prayer, 
through love that includes, not excludes. And through the discipline of walking away when that fear overwhelms us. Help us to know those signs, God. Help us not to be party to this fear that rules our world right now. Let us be the model of Christ to a hurting world. Help us to be good soldiers. Enable us to be willing to lay down our lives for people who aren't anything like us. And make us see this wondrous, wonderful world in which we live. Make our world bigger. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.